You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. In case you missed a blog from a few weeks ago, we're looking for a few good directors. We're building the only director database on the web, exclusively for use by the industry, for writers, anyone looking for a director. So if you're a director or you know one, Google Ken Davenport Director Database. That's Ken Davenport Director Database. The blog will come up, fill out your information, and we'll try to get everyone some work. And now, speaking of directors, on to the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. This is the Producer's Perspective Podcast. I am Ken Davenport. I'm very excited to have on today's podcast the man responsible for for some of the biggest and most breathtaking productions of the last decade, Tony Award-winning director, Mr. Bartlett Shear. Welcome, Bart. Hi. So some of those productions I'm talking about include this season's Fiddler on the Roof, as well as last season's Tony Award-winning King and I, the Tony Award-winning South Pacific, as well as Bridges of Madison County, which I was fortunate enough to be a producer on, Light in the Piazza, Wake in St. Goldavoy, a ton more. The New York Times actually called Bart one of the most original and exciting directors, not only in the American theater, but also in the international world of opera. Uh, he's also the resident director at Lincoln Center, where we are right now. Bart, so where did you get bit by the theater bug? How did this begin for you? Um, well, the uh, I, I had the very unusual circumstances of growing up in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s, uh, where life was tumultuous, where I came from a large Catholic family. My father was Jewish, but I had a large Catholic family. Um and in which uh, the world was in a great deal of 
transformation. So there were riots in the streets. There was crazy things happening. There was political upheaval from Vietnam. Um, I had brothers who were very adventurous and much older than I was. So I watched them go through a lot of things. And one of the great things my brothers did was when I was, I think, 10 or 11 years old, um, they took me to my first, what I would consider my first great theatrical experience, which happened to be a concert of the Grateful Dead at Winterland Arena, where I watched the Bacchic ritual of 5,000 young people taking more risks in the audience than they were taking on stage, uh, engage in an incredibly wild uh, performance piece uh, in a weird interaction between the band and between the audience and between the sort of live um, visual world that was being created with like overhead projectors and weird stuff. And I fell into a kind of interest in music and in art. And I grew up in a very cultural city where I got to see, you know, symphony music next to Grateful Dead, next to theater at ACT that was run by Bill Ball at that time. So I had a kind of crazy upbringing mixed with a great deal of political upheaval and a great deal of transformation and a lot of people taking drugs and things around me, which forced you to see the world differently. It was also the rise of the gay community at that time. So there was a ton of stuff going on in my young eyes as I grew up. Um, and I think that led me to an appreciation or a perception of the world, which was unique, perhaps um, challenging and uh, interested in possibly different levels of adventure. And how, why directing? Why was that the avenue that you wanted to take instead of performing or, frankly, fronting a 60s band? Well, I didn't really start <clears throat> in directing. I, I then went to a fairly conventional liberal arts Catholic college on the East Coast, even though I grew up in the West Coast. It was a Jesuit school. I went to Jesuit college. Uh, I went to a Jesuit high school. Um, and I really probably had more interest in becoming a writer than a director, uh, I found myself as an English major. I started as a philosophy major, but switched to English. I had traveled a bit around the world. I've been to Europe. I've done some other things. I mean, I earned the money to go to Europe to visit my brother at one point. So I was kind of expanding my sense of art and things like that. But I wanted to be a writer. And in my senior year of college, I wrote a play that I somehow talked everybody into producing on the main stage of the school. The play was called Fish Every Day. It was a kind of weird thriller slash crazy indictment of Catholicism and Catholic colleges. And it was quite a cause celebre, you know, in my community. And it was fun to do. And it kind of bit got me in, nurtured and interested in the idea of making theater. Um, it wasn't until after I got out of college that I convinced my old high school back in San Francisco now uh, to hire me to teach English because it was an English major and to run the drama department. Um, there was absolutely no reason they should have believed me, but they gave me a theater and I was 22 years old. And I, they said, here's the play that you have to do first. And I said, great. And, uh, I actually did the lighting and the theater and that's where I started. So I've actually been directing as a result since that time for something like 34, 35 years straight. Um, and that after that point, I, you know, got very involved in, um, uh, experimental theater because of my interest in the Grateful Dead and things like that. And I, I, um, saw one of the great influences in my growing up was, uh, something called the Olympic Arts Festival in 1984, where all of the great, for some reason, all of the great European and actually from Asia 
theater companies came to Los Angeles. So I saw Giorgio Strahler, who was a huge influence on me from the Piccolo Teatro, Ariane Manushkin from France, and this amazing guy named Tadeusz Kantor, who was a Polish avant-garde theater artist. And I just immersed myself in all these influences. And um, soon after that, I moved to San Diego and built my own theater company. And then I decided to go to graduate school in England, where I studied African theater. And I, I mean, I really went through a big kind of developmental period that was both classical and eventually uh, was both experimental first and then became more classical because after this long sort of investigative period in England and here, uh, I um, was hired to be the resident director of the Guthrie Theater in the early 90s with Garland Wright, and that sort of kicked me into the more traditional vein of theater. And then you spent some time in Seattle, right? At the Yeah, no, after the Guthrie, I then worked at Hartford Stage under Mark Lamos as an associate artistic director. I did lots of freelancing and then eventually was angling toward becoming an artistic director. And eventually the place I convinced to hire me um, was the Intamont Theater in Seattle, where I, I had already done a ton of work up to that point. But I then took a body of work into the Intamont and sort of produced that and had worked at Theater for a New Audience here in New York, and we did stuff at the RSC and bounced back and forth. My big first huge New York Broadway job was Light in the Piazza. And did you always have your eyes set on New York? Were no, you like, one day I want to... No. No, I, I, I just wanted to make theater. I actually had no um, conscious interest in New York, nor did I think it was necessarily necessary. Or did I think it was necessary to be in New York? Um, I was happily making theater in the regional theater. I was doing experimental stuff. I was producing my own stuff. I was living quite, you know, close to the bone, but I still was constantly working. And um, New York kind of became incidental. I could have easily stayed running a theater or in the regional theater for my life. It's just that Light in the Piazza sort of changed the chemistry on that because then that led to I had begun to work in opera at that point, so I was doing stuff at the Met and then Light in the Piazza, and then I uh, did South Pacific and then became resident director here, and I did more and more stuff. Over the last 12 years in New York, it's been pretty busy. Could we ever see a revival of Fish Every Day here in New York No, City? you could not. No, no. <laughs> no, I don't you? believe so. I, I, It's a fascinating thought, but it was very, very good and very funny in its way for what it was, but it was more like a site-specific art installation sort of uh, indictment slash satire of an entire thing. And it was fun. It was fun to make. But we'll talk about that after. Maybe I yes. can option it. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the most important part of a director's job is? There's lots of things to do. Dealing with the actors, the concept of the production, working with the writers. What's the most important part? It's a very difficult question. I think um, intellectually, it's it's really important, and I, I talk about this distinction a lot, um, to separate the the interpretive from the creative impulse. Um, directing is an interpretive art, uh, it, like conducting. There is a pre-existing reality. It could be a script, it could be a text, it could be a music, it could be anything. And you take this pre-existing reality and you make something of it. It's different than if I sit down as a composer or a writer, and I write my own piece and shape it myself. Now, directors help in the development of scripts, but essentially we're interpreters. And so, and we're also unifiers. We like unify all the arts around us. So we have to be immersed in everything. We have to be immersed in, in sets, lights, costume, sound, 
Um, we have to be able to draw together out of actors' performances and build a mise-en-scene, as they would say in France. And that's an, a conception around the piece. That can be spatial, that can be all these things. And there are a lot of, um, a lot of approaches to what makes an interpretation interesting. There are m very traditional approaches, say in the world of Zeffirelli or Strahler, uh, and then there are very extreme approaches, uh, Ivo van Hove being a more experimental European approach. Uh, and there are many ways of kind of entering and revealing a text at different points, either if it's newly been done or if it's been done a million times and how to make them significant in the moment you're making them. The job a director has um, is, you know, we're sort of like enormously skilled at convincing everybody else to be good <laughs> and holding together everybody else's talent. It's different than the actual talent of an actor or a singer. We actually draw all these parts together and then reveal them either to the person, their own talents, the designer, etc., or to other people and help pull together the rhythm, uh, the storytelling, the spatial rhythm, um, the action, all of those things get integrated through how a director decides where it's going. So you've worked on these great revivals. You've worked on great new productions. And I love this idea that it's an interpretive art. I love that description. So which do you prefer interpreting when the authors are there alive sitting next to you so you can influence it more? Or would you rather just have that text to work on? Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I'd rather it be good. <laughs> because when it's not going well on either case, it's really, really hard. And when it's in the mix and you know, you've gone to something great, it's going to be super fun. So I've had experiences of something like Piazza, which was always such a great piece. And we made it better and better and better and better. I had experiences on things like women on the verge, which was very rough going early on. And then kind of got our, butts kicked when we were in New York and then went back to London to redo it and actually made a really good piece out of it. I've had other things where they're very hard to find their life or their backbone. That's in the new development. Um, and then plays that go really well. So that part is different. There's just different impulses of who you are. If it's Verdi and it's Otello from, you know, 1870, whatever, you just have this great work and your job is really not between you and the writer it's your job is between you and the 500 other versions of that show there have been in the context it's been and how to bring something new to it so what is your process when you're handed something like that when you say hey we're gonna you're gonna do fiddler you're gonna do south pacific you're gonna do Italo, whatever that is what's the first thing you do um well uh there's a long um uh sort of immersion in the world of the piece uh in the research in the production history and approaches to it and sort of in the world. So if you take something like Fiddler, um, it, I did spend time um, reading the Shalom Aleichem, learning as much as I could about 1905 versus 1965, which is when it actually really is set. Um, what uh, Shalom Aleichem was up to when it came to his view of being Jewish, his view of the world of the play, of, of, of Tevye. I looked at uh, Maurice Schwartz's 1939 film called Tevye, which is um, uh, more about the Hava story. I looked at all the things that had influenced them in 65, a book called Life is with People, 
uh, all the drawings and stuff of, Ch of Chagall that they found interesting, how they had looked at it. I went to the New York Public Library and saw a version, the only version they really have, of Mustel doing it like 20 years later, which was interesting and complicated to watch because he was totally out of control. Um, but I wanted to see how Robbins had developed it. I had two things in my favor about finding something new in it. One was Danny Burstein and one was Hofess Schechter, who's the choreographer. So I knew I could kind of find something in it. And at the same time, I'm always asking the same question with the revival, which is why must we do it today? What is its immediate significance in the world right now? So for something like Fiddler, that had a lot to do with this horrible refugee crisis, which was sweeping across Europe and continues to be an enormous problem where... People have been driven out of entire regions in Syria and in the Middle East or in Somalia. And how to integrate some idea of that. Also, we're in an era of very intense identity politics and what it means for people to ask questions about their identity. And so I kind of immersed myself into that. Then I spent hours and hours of time with Michael Jurgen going through the designs and finding a way within a proscenium to look at it differently. And that was extremely excruciating there. So it's just sort of a, you go back every day and you keep adding and adding and adding and you build all the things that you're going to experiment with when you get to rehearsal and then you start piecing them together. You start exploring the piece from there. You don't go and just hook it together. You actually go in in order to explore with all these different ideas. Then you hope you're shaping it over the course of the exploration into something that's you can do for a first preview that won't completely embarrass you. Then you begin an editing process after that, which leads to final production goal of first preview don't embarrass yourself yes just it. get through it yes so uh, i'm glad you started to talk about rehearsal and, and the beginning of it so chris catelli was on the podcast a couple of months ago yeah uh, of course raved about working with you worked with him a number of he's times great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he did say that working with you is one of the scariest things he's ever done as a choreographer because of the approach do you know why he would have said that well because nobody knows anything that's exactly yes. right. So yeah. <laughs> he was scared um, because he said the first day he didn't know he couldn't do anything. You said, let's let's do some work. So will you describe your rehearsal? Well, I mean, that? you know, and Andre will say this, you know, I'm like, you know, comfortable with chaos. But uh, it's not that. I have things in mind that I'm going to explore. And I look at directing as an activity. It's like I take the text and I take the thing and I begin to push it together and shape it and paint it's like buckets of paint on the floor and ideas there. And I have a certain kind of canvas and I begin to shape it. It's a little bit more chaotic, but it's an activity. That way, the actors come in and join the part of that part of the activity. The designers come in and we join the activity. I'm doing it and we're building this thing together. So in Chris's case, he's going to go, I'm going to go, I don't know why you're doing that. And we'll, he'll throw something at it and I'll do this. And we keep adding and adding and adding to try to, pull apart and ask questions and see where we are. So I'm in the middle of this play now, Oslo, which, you know, through the first act is in very good shape, but there's a middle part of the first act where I'm having a great deal of trouble pushing it through this one part of where the show goes. And so I have to go back to the writer and go to here because that my sense of how I build something, the blocks are sort of unsteady. So in Chris's case, he's going to, it's going to push you because you're going to have to be thinking on your feet and quick and, developing ideas right there in the space. It's very active. You've been directing for a couple decades now, you said, yes. since you were 22 years old. Has directing changed over the last couple of decades? Do you think you have to have a different approach as a director working today than you did 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Um, that's an interesting question. I would say probably not. Fundamentally, it hasn't changed. 
the influences have changed. Who influenced me um, over the middle part of the 20th century, from Peter Brook to um, Strayler to, is, is different than who's influencing people now, uh, both experimentally and classically. Uh, I think that the um, the place that theater has um, layers of where interpretation are going to either experimentally or intellectually or commercially are wildly sort of changing. Um, I think people use theater more to express personal uh, experiences, um, things they've gone through, things they are personally going through, and they analyze it on a political level with a capital P as opposed to a small p, uh, more specifically than perhaps they used to, although it's always been certain levels of, quote, propaganda in theater. Um, the basic function of what you do with a text onto a stage has not changed. The technology's changed. Um, the way people listen and hear has changed. <laughs> what they're capable of handling in terms of the amount of different information at the same time or how it's delivered has changed. Their capacity to hear has changed. Their experience... They, audiences don't share... Uh, it's more difficult in the sense they don't share the same history of the work. So they're not all in the same place when they get in the room. So that can be quite wildly fascinating and hard. Um, so, no, what we basically do hasn't changed, but who we are and how we perceive and what influences us has changed radically. So take it from there. Do you find that you need to keep up on the latest technology and tricks and gadgets from design to wherever, or do you let your designers bring you ideas for that? I mean, when it comes to the lighting equipment, for example, lighting equipment has changed radically since I started and I used to do lighting design on my own. I don't even remotely understand how it works, but I do understand that the most important person now in tech is the person who programs the lighting board. And if that person's slow, everyone is going to scream and go crazy and the producers are going to lose their minds and we're going to all die. Um, I do understand that people have a desire for... Um, highly technological experiences and very diverse experiences. And so you have to, I see a lot. So you kind of ex like learn from that. Um, I don't, I don't really feel the need to know the work technologically differently. Um, know what people are up to or how they're perceiving things. Yes. What do you look for when you audition actors, actors that you don't know? You're sitting in a room, people walk in. What, what, what are you looking for? It's, well, I don't expect them to come in and deliver the role for me, for me to use. Uh, I expect them to come in and, and I'm, I'm usually really, I'm really searching for collab, for A, the talent and whether you're good for the role and then whether you have the collaborative skills to build the thing quickly with me. Because as you know, I'm going to be chaotic and I'm going to make it as we go along. So I want people who are versatile and have a certain kind of collaborative skills. So I may find that they're really good for the part, but I may smell that they're difficult or they're not really quite on a good vibe with me, and I still won't hire them, even if they're perfect. I would rather have uh, build a team, build a group of people who are going to be enjoying the adventure with me and have the intellectual and physical and actual talent for acting that I need. You always want, if you have a great actor... You are going to have a great show. Um, but 
You need a collaborator. You also sometimes in the leading roles look for leaders for the company, people who have the capacity to like be that extra person in the room who, who the company itself coalesces around. Danny Burstein's a great example of that. Kelly O'Hara is a great example of that. They're, Patty Lapone is a great example of that. They're great leaders of companies and they pull everybody forward into the work and their bravery and in their integrity. So auditioning is a uh, diagnostic process for the talent, etc. And also I'm looking for a colleague. Don't you harken back to your high school drama teacher days or your when you had to grade kids? Grade Broadway. How do you think we're doing right now as opposed to its history? Oh, I think Broadway's in a very, very intensely healthy and diverse and creative phase. Uh, I think more people are trying to do it. There's lots of resources. There's tons, you know, something like Hamilton, which is an extraordinary piece of work, uh, is a great idea taking hip hop and musical theater and smashing it into this new form about our own history. It's brave in its intentions and it makes everyone kind of reach for a higher standard. Uh, I think anytime you make something new and good, it pushes everybody ahead. And I think that's the case with Hamilton. Um, I think there's a lot of um, um, creativity, a lot of uh, extraordinary talent. The community is healthy. People are actually working and making a living um, and building lives to some degree. It's always an uncertain business, but it's there. Uh, I think the level of the overall chemistry and uh, ecology of, of Broadway from the stagehands to the producers, uh, to the stage managers, to the actors, to the publicist, every, the whole overall ecology is incredibly diverse and rich, um, uh, both in terms of its class, in terms of um, uh, uh, diversity of uh, people of color, people, all of who we are is somehow in this weird little microcosm that's called Broadway. And it's very, very, I find it to be very healthy these days. Um, and there's some incredibly talented people working. So even compared to when I first more or less got involved 10, 15 years ago, it seems to be doing as well as it's ever been doing. So here comes a James Lipton type question for you. The Smithsonian Institute calls you and says, Bart, we have room for one of your productions to store here forever. Mm. Which one would you choose and why? Of all the shows you've done, including Fish Every Day. <laughs> um, I think I would... It, that one's relatively easy. Um, it would probably be two. I, if, I, if I do a play and a musical, the musical would be Piazza because it's new and it was a very important thing in my life and, and Adam is very special. Um, but the but the production that I'm most proud of is Awake and Sing that I did uh, with Mark Ruffalo and Ben Gazzara and Zoe Wanamaker. It was just a perfect combination of me and Odette's and that group of people. And I, my ideas for it really transformed how you could think about that piece, um, both in a traditional way and non-traditional way. And that group of artists just got better and better and better all the way through the run. Uh, so it's probably my favorite that I've done there um, and would be the one you should probably watch. You've been an artistic director of a regional theater, which I'm starting to believe is a misnomer and that artistic directors are really producers of that theater, there, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so you know a lot about that area. If you could gather all the Broadway producers in one room 
and tell them one thing. What's the one thing you'd want all Broadway producers to know about what you do or what we well, should do better? Well, first of all, there's some really good Broadway producers. And the most difficult job to be good at in the theater, and the one that's the rarest to find all those skills in, is the good producer. Because what the producer has to do is balance um, everything between capitalism and 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 commercial the commercial nature of the work and finding a way to allow the the director artist to be as rich and complete in their artistic enterprises and and sort of steer them towards accomplishment and especially if it's solely in the commercial vein that's incredibly difficult to do um, because the concerns are so high and the costs are so high so I wouldn't know what to tell them I would just know to tell them to to trust as much that the best level of art may make them the most money, right? If you take something like Lion King or something like Hamilton or something like even Wicked, you know, the highest level of art can also produce the highest amount of income. And it's never only been true that a purely commercial piece, which will make your money back, is necessarily worth it without the art. So it's how to keep, it's what that balancing act is, which is always going to be different each time. Do you prefer working in the nonprofit over the commercial? You know, people ask me whether it's nonprofit or commercial or whether it's opera or plays or musicals. Or what, and I just don't have, I don't think like that. I mean, a good project's a great project. I've had great experiences in the commercial world and great experiences in the nonprofit. Um, What's good about the commercial is there's actually more time and more resources to get it right because it's more worth it for them to get it right than to not. And so that those that level of resources being there to make sure it goes well is kind of helpful. Okay, my last question. It's the second of my James Lipton-like questions. It's my genie question. I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to your office here in Lincoln Center mm -hmm. and says, Bart, I want to thank you for your incredible contributions to the theater so far mm -hmm. and grant you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway that makes you angry, that could have you screaming and yelling and stomping your feet? that you'd want this genie to change with the snap of his finger. And I always want to say wave of the wand, but he didn't have a wand. What's that one thing? Um, <laughs> that's really hard. Um, well, I would, I would probably not ask for something for myself. I would ask, um, I would ask the genie in my wish to give my 10 best friends who make things great ideas and really great start on making a great piece and then make sure that I, if I'm lucky enough, I get to direct them <laughs> because it's really helping people like Adam or David Yazbek or, um, uh, JT Rogers or Stephen Karam or whatever, giving them the ideas. That's the engine room of Broadway is great ideas. Lin-Manuel Miranda's proved that. I think Tommy Kale's a great director. It's the engine room of great ideas. So give me 10 great ideas that I know really pull together the form in a certain way and help us push ahead. Um, beyond that, the, the, the rest of it is all like, like the, 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 the means of production. 
you know, the rest of it is all about like, yes, I would wish for them to make all the general managers worry less, <laughs> you know, more so than anyone else. Cause they have the hardest job on Broadway. You know, they're always balancing the, the sort of permissiveness of the producer with the actual realities of what the artist wants and trying to figure out how to do that. I would ask for, um, you know, for, uh, local one to allow me to make the transitions I want without torturing me, you know, I'd like things like that, you know, that are kind of, but I still actually love all those guys. And so I'm always, it's kind of the fun part of the job, but really the best thing is great ideas. That's a, a great answer. And I love that you got three answers in, in there. Yeah, there You've are. once again convinced me now, just like you convinced your high school teacher to, or high school to give you that gig. Uh, thank you so much for this on a personal note. Thank you so much for the productions you have given the city. They're some of the most glorious nights I've had in the theater. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you next time. Hey, don't forget, if you're a director or you know a director looking for some work, Google Ken Davenport Director Database. That's Ken Davenport Director Database. This blog will come up. Read all about it. Submit your stuff, and we'll try to connect you with some people looking for a few good directors. I'm gonna be a producer. Look out, Broadway, here I come. Hey, it's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now. And get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org. Because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.